0: The police.
1: Stand up live. Good afternoon. Welcome to the uh, Norwich uh, the Norris Cancer Center Grand Rounds. Um, I'm Petra Lewis. I'm the Vice Chair for Education in Radiology and one of the breast images there. It's my absolute delight to introduce today Dr. Daniel Kopans, who is a professor of uh, radiology at Harvard and the director of the Breast Imaging Center at uh, Mass General Hospital. Um, Dan has told me that he would much rather you listen to him talking than um, listen to me talking about him. Um, He also has a 38-page CV, so it would take the next hour. But the highlights, just to give you the shortest highlights, he is really one of the primary forces behind uh, breast uh, mammographic screening for women in the United States. Um, he you know, pretty much started the process. He is also the inventor of tomosynthesis, which is um, widely used, including at this institution, for current mammographic screening, as well as a number of, holds a number of other pat- patterns in breast imaging, including a, the Copan's needle, which anyone who does breast imaging is very familiar with, because this is how we do our needle localizations for the surgeons. Um, he has authored over 225 scientific articles, innumerable chapters, uh, about 25 textbooks um, in breast imaging. So he really is an internationally known name, and we're very lucky to have him. But um, he is talking here today about many of the controversies, which I think you are aware of, that surround breast screening. Um, This is gonna be a fairly controversial talk. You may not agree with everything you're gonna hear, but I think it's really important that you hear it. Um, And thank you very
0: much, Dan. Uh, Thank you very much, it's uh, actually um, great to be back. Uh, Petra didn't mention that I actually did my medical internship here only about 42 years ago. (laughs) Uh, just a short time, and uh, nothing has changed, so it's, uh, it's, it's good to be back in, uh, in Hanover. Um, <clears throat> I did send in that I have no uh, real disclosures, but people have criticized me for not saying that I didn't invent tomosynthesis, but I invented it for the breast, and um, Mass General holds the patent, uh, so I'm disclosing that even though I'm not talking about tomosynthesis today. And then this is the Dartmouth Disclosure Statement. I do not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, and I attest that I'm not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Um, What I'm going to do is to, uh, in very short order, because time is limited and I want to leave as much time as I can for questions, uh, go over what really has been a 40-year effort uh, to deny women access to mammography screen. Now, that sounds pretty harsh, um, but uh, having been involved in this for 40 years, uh, it really has been a concerted effort to try and reduce uh, access to screening, and I'll, I'll show you uh, why that is in a minute. I wanted to start off. Uh, I came up to Dartmouth uh, for my internship because of uh, a fellow named David Kainer, who was a surgical intern here and then became a surgical resident when I was an intern, and he married my best friend uh, from elementary school and uh, uh, on up, uh, Marjorie Kaner-Long, who's uh, come up here to sit and listen. And uh, I had hoped to one day give a Kaner lecture, but I uh, haven't uh, had that. So uh, I'm going to dedicate uh, this lecture uh, to David, who died of uh, leukemia. Uh, during his second year of uh, residency here at uh, Dartmouth. Uh, David uh, was sort of the, the patient's doctor. He really cared about his patients. He would stay overnight. Uh, if there was a patient who uh, needed him postoperatively, he'd stay in their rooms. And one of the things about David that I remember is he would not tolerate compromises in care. And um, I think you're going to see that uh, uh, he would probably have appreciated uh, this lecture. Spoiler alert now, I, I thought I was going to be the first one to say this, but it turns out CNN, I guess, has just flashed it. The American Cancer Society is just publishing their <clears throat> updated uh, screening guidelines in JAMA. So uh, basically, uh, they're going to say, if you read, and you have to read them very carefully, this is one of the more confusing <clears throat> documents that I've seen in a while, they say that you save the most lives by annual screening beginning at the age of 40. And, then, and, and they're saying they have a qualified recommendation for women to start at age 40. Their strong recommendation is start at 45. That's the first time anyone's brought 45 into the discussion. Uh, it will add more interesting discussions over the next few months, I'm sure. Uh, and then the question is how frequently to screen. And they're saying, well, you can do it every year, you can do it every two years, but you save the most lives by annual screening beginning at the age of 40. And if you look at uh, their definition of a qualified recommendation, they state that a majority of individuals in this situation, namely 40 to 44, <clears throat> would want the suggested course of action, namely annual mammography, uh, but many would not. <laughs> and so they're, I don't know what they're thinking, but I guess they don't want women to feel guilty if they decide they don't want to start screening uh, till later. But the bottom line is uh, that you save the most lives by annual screening beginning at the age of 40. These are what the, this is what the data have actually shown for decades, uh, but there's been a lot of debate and discussion and uh, misinformation that I hope to try and clarify in the short time we have together. I'm going to finish with conclusions. The first conclusion is mammography saves the most lives by annual screening beginning at 40. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about uh, false positives. Uh, The suggestion that women are being told they have cancer when they don't, that's not what false positives uh, mean. When you read, certainly, the ACS uh, analysis, they point out that most of the, quote, false positives are simply recalls from screening. So a woman has something on a mammogram, we see something, we call her back for additional evaluation, and for the vast majority of women, everything's fine. So I think it's misleading to call them false positives. From a scientific point of view, I understand the rationale, but I think women have been misled, and their doctors, I think, have been misled to a, um, a certain extent. So my the conclusion is that most of the false positives are just recalls from screening. Overdiagnosis, which is one of the things that was interesting, it came up in the 1990s before many of you were born. Uh, I was still arguing back then. Um, there is little, if any, overdiagnosis of invasive cancers. I'll, Take you through that as, uh, quickly. Um, the claims of overdiagnosis are based on faulty, scientifically unsupported analyses and guesses, and I'll take you through that. So, why can't we just all get along? You know, why can't we just agree to disagree? Uh, experts can look at the same information and come to different conclusions. Can't we just compromise? My mother uh, recognized my frustration back in the 1990s. Unfortunately, she's no longer with us. And she came across this story, which has to be true because it's on the web now. But a United States naval vessel was barreling through heavy seas at night when a ship was seen coming toward it. The captain had the signalman go up and signal the order to the light, alter your course 10 degrees to starboard. For those of you who don't know, means turn to the right. Signalman sent the message and returned with a reply from the light, change your course 10 degrees to starboard. Well, you can imagine the commander wasn't particularly happy with that, so he had the signalman send the following message. This is the United States battleship. I'm an admiral in the United States Navy. Alter your course 10 degrees to starboard." Signalman went up, came back with a reply. I'm a bosun's mate, third class U.S. Coast Guard. This is a lighthouse. (laughs) It's your call. So I apologize for uh, bringing the... uh, the Harvard Shield into here, but our motto actually is Veritas, which uh, stands for truth. So I'm here to try and speak the truth. Mammography screening, uh, despite all the controversies, is probably one of the major medical advances in the last 50 years. Certainly it's gone, undergone more testing than any other uh, study that I know of, and remarkably, opposition has persisted <laughs> over that uh, period of time. Um, when you read the ACS guidelines, and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force um, put out preliminary uh, a draft recommendation which said wait until 50 and get screened every two years, which is, was their old position as well, if you read what they write, they all agree that you save the most lives by annual screening beginning at 40. So the qualifications come in where they worry about the, the recalls, the false positives, and they're somehow balancing, reducing the recalls by not screening uh, somehow equates to dying from breast cancer. And they never tell you how they, the scales they used, but they both agree you save the most lives by annual screening beginning at 40. This has been shown in randomized controlled trials. It's been shown when screening is introduced into the general population. These are data from the randomized controlled trials, and I'm not going to go into detail, but this just shows that there's statistically significant mortality reduction. And the trials included women ages 40 to 74. If you're worried about women in their 40s, there was a lot of debate in the 1990s and and a a lot of misinformation. I'm going to show you how that developed uh, in a few seconds here. Um, If you just look at the data for screening women in their 40s with long enough follow-up, there's statistically significant benefit for screening women in their 40s. And just recently, a few months ago, the uh, age trial in um, the UK (coughs) published their follow-up of women. One of the pieces of nonsense uh, that came up over the years was that um, in the trials, screening uh, women who entered in their 40s and counted as being in their 40s didn't have their lives saved until they became 50 or over and screening started to work. It was called age creep. And, you know, some of us dumb radiologists are going... How does your body know that it's 50 and it's time for screening to work? And anyhow, it turns out it was all nonsense. And the age trial actually was formed because of this, and only women 40 and 41 were screened or offered screening, and they were followed for nine years, so nobody hit 50. And there was still a 25% mortality reduction. So a lot of the baloney uh, about something happens at 50 is exactly that. It's just, and I'll show you some more baloney in a minute. Sorry to use, that's a Boston term. Um, The other point is that the AGE trial actually underestimates the benefit because they only used single-view mammography and uh, didn't biopsy clustered calcification, so they missed a lot of small cancers, and they admitted that. These are SEER data from the United States, Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results, and even beyond SEER, there are data that go back showing the death rate from breast cancer was unchanged for at least 50 years in the U.S. Screening began in the mid-1980s and the death rate has declined dramatically uh, since then. Now, therapy has gotten better as well. So there are improvements in therapy, but I think most oncologists um, would uh, agree that uh, they save the most lives when they get to treat breast cancers uh, earlier. It has been suggested that the decline in deaths is due to improvements in therapy, uh, but um, if you look at a lot of the observational data where women have access to the same therapy, um, I want you all to memorize this list. The the uh, deaths go down in relationship to screening, even though everybody has access uh, to advances uh, in therapy. It's only sixteen references, so you should be able to remember that. But those are all studies that showed that uh, when screening is introduced into the population, not just in randomized trials, the death rate goes down. There are observational studies, so there are issues of selection bias and so on, but. But uh, consistently, the death rate goes down when screening is introduced. So here on the right is the death rate for American women going down steadily from 1990. This is the death rate for men with breast cancer in the United States. We do get breast cancer, fortunately for us, at a much lower rate than women. Uh, We're treated the same way. But notice our death rate, instead of going down in 1990, went up. Stayed up until about 2005 and then came back down to 1990 levels and has uh, remained there whereas the death rate for women has continued to decline. And I would argue, again, okay, this is not proof, but I would argue that that's because we screen women and we don't screen men for breast cancer. In uh, more than 40,000 women in the United States are still dying of breast cancer despite our improvements in therapy. And I would suspect, we don't have data on this that I know of, uh, they all, most of them are getting treated, and yet treatment is not saving their lives. Now, we don't know how many of them are getting mammograms but in a large study of the Harvard Teaching Hospitals, Mass General, the Brigham and Women's Hospital, 70%, more than 70% of the women who died from breast cancer were among the 20% of women who weren't participating in screening. Not proof that screening uh, is what saves lives, but it's more frosting on the cake after the randomized controlled trials. Breast cancer is not a trivial issue for women in their 40s. There are more than 30,000 women who are diagnosed with breast cancer each year in their 40s. Now, there's been a huge uh, list of uh, arguments uh, against screening that have come up uh, fairly in my lifetime. And they probably, I think they started before I was born, too. Um, but uh, they've all been addressed, but they go from the ridiculous that the Canadian, any Canadians in the audience? My, my daughter-in-law is Canadian, so I, I, can, I can say this. The Canadians were saying mammography was squeezing cancer into the blood causing early death. I'm gonna talk about the Canadian screening trial in a few minutes. Um, They had more deaths in their screened women, 40 to 49, than in the control group. And uh, there was a huge kerfuffle, I guess, is that the word? (laughs) A lot of debate back in the 90s about we were killing women and we had to stop screening and all that. Then they realized that was just not true. And now we're to breast cancer would melt away if left undetected. All of the challenges to screening have been addressed scientifically uh, what I find fascinating is opponents dream up new challenges when the old ones are, are, have been met. Uh, the debate hasn't been about the facts, but quite frankly, uh, problems in the peer-reviewed journals that are permitting uh, papers to get published that are scientifically uh, unsupportable. Let me just give you an example of, of one of the older uh, issues, how you can make it look like something happens at the age of 50. This was a paper from the University of California at San Francisco. It's been quoted for many, many years Back in 1993, where they compared women 30 to 49 to women ages 50 to 70 and looked at the cancer detection rate. And they averaged them. Now, notice I, I said that really quickly, so you wouldn't know 30 to 49. No one was arguing screening women in their 30s. Why did they throw in 30 to 39 instead of just keeping it 40 to 49? And I would cynically argue that because they wanted to bring the number down. So here's the average cancer detection rate for women 30 to 49, 2 per 1,000. And here it is for women 50 and everybody over 10 per 1,000. So, big jump at 50. Well, actually, if you look at their data, and you can you can tease this out in the paper, and you just look at least at 40 to 49 separately, 50 to 59, they're closer. It was uh, 3 per 1,000, 40 to 49, uh, 6 per 1,000, 50 to 59. The confidence intervals overlap, so they're not significantly different but they're different the incidence of breast cancer goes up with age but it's not a huge jump suddenly at 50 and if you looked at by individual age i have no doubt you'd just see a steady uh, increase uh, i actually pointed this out to the lead author before the paper was published and it still got published um, so they took data that looked like this with 10 year increments actually the bigger jump was up in the 60 at 60 and they averaged 30 to 49, and compared it to the average 50 and over, and that's what they made it look like. And uh, here's where Dartmouth comes in. Um, uh, Harold Sox up here at uh, Dartmouth uh, wrote an editorial based on this paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine, 1995. The yield of cancers of the first marrow grows five times higher in women 50 years of age and older, 10 versus 2. Clearly mammography is much more efficient in detecting breast cancers in older women. It's not true. Uh, It was made to look that way, and I'm not sure why Harold uh, missed it, Uh, but uh, that idea that something suddenly happens at the age of 50 has been repeated over and over again by uh, grouping data and uh, averaging it. (coughs) The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force in 2009 was a little better. These are data, I just made a graph of uh, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, and increased the cancer incidence by. 0.1 Um, 0.1 per age, so it's just going up steadily, which is pretty much what happens in the population. A woman age 40 has one chance in a thousand this year of having a cancer. 41 is 1.1, 42 is 1.2. So it goes up steadily with increasing age. This is what the UCSF paper did, made it look like there's a sudden jump. The U.S. Financial Services Task Force in 2009 was a little better. They did it by 10 year periods, but there's no jump at these ages. It's all got to do with averaging. Uh, the groups. The age 50 has been imbued with uh, unsupportable uh, importance. There's no biological or scientific reason uh, to have a threshold for screening at age 50. It's arbitrary. Now, women aren't told that. It sounds like there's something that happens at 50. Uh, nothing happens at 50. These are data from Mass General published years ago, but <clears throat> if, you, if you look at your own data here, I'm sure you'll see the same thing. This is the recall rate from screening, the false positive rate. You can see nothing happens at age 50. The recalls go down slightly, I think it was from 8% to about uh, 7 or 6% by age uh, 80, but nothing happening at 50. This is the recommendation for biopsies. You can see there is more statistical fluctuation because the numbers are lower. But again, by individual age, not averaging but 40, 41, 42, you can see nothing happens at 50. And this is the cancer detection rate, again, even more statistical fluctuation because fewer uh, patients. But again, nothing happens at 50. The cancer detection rate goes up steadily with increasing age because the prior probability of cancer in the population goes up steadily with increasing age. There are absolutely zero data. I would challenge anyone to find any data that show that anything changes suddenly at the age of 50 or any other age for that matter. So this is a myth that's been perpetuated, and we're still seeing it today, where now the ACS is saying, well, let's move the threshold to 45, Uh, even though they're saying "But there's still benefit at 40. Why 40? Well, the reason we use 40 is that the randomized control trials didn't include anyone younger than 40. The cancer detection rate for women Thirty-five to thirty-nine, based on a a Memorial Sloan-Kettering study years ago, is the same as for women forty to forty-four, but we don't have randomized controlled trial data to say that those women can have their lives saved, so we're not pushing screening before forty. We've stood by the science, and that's why the age of forty is supported by the science. This is just a list of some of the issues that have come up over the years. Uh, Radiation is going to cause more cancer than it's going to cure, not true. Radiation risk, fortunately, is very, very low, if nonexistent, for women 40 and over. Breast turn to fat at 50, and screening suddenly begins to save lives. I mean, I, I don't have time to go through all these. I'm happy to talk to anyone afterward. Um, I've written, and other people have written on this as, as well. Screening leads to massive overdiagnosis and overtreatment. I'm going to get to that in a second. And then I think what's behind some of this is money can be saved by allowing women to die rather than uh, screening. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about that, but I. I Again, if someone wants to talk about it afterward, I'm happy to. So it all revolves around the harms, the so-called harms of screening, which I think unfortunately is a pejorative term and misunderstood by a lot of people. Most of the harms are false positives, and most of the false positives are recalls uh, from screening. This is uh, sort of a national average. I'm not sure what it uh, is up here at Dartmouth, but um, if you screen 1,000 women, approximately 100, 10% will be recalled for additional evaluation. Now, what's always fascinating to me is when numbers are taken out of any kind of frame of reference. The recall rate for cervical cancer screening, that are known as pap smears, is 10%. And yet, I haven't, there was a, there was a time back in the 70s when people were clamoring you know, about that, and somehow that's sort of died down. But the recall rate is 10% in, in the United States. And you look at the numbers, about 65 have a few, uh, the 100 have a few extra pictures or an ultrasound, nothing's found, everyone's reassured go you know, back to routine screening. Uh, <clears throat> about 26 are asked to come back in six months. It's like if a clinician feels a, excuse me, feels a lump, says I don't think it's much, don't we have you come back in three months and we'll see it again. I mean that's done every day. This is done uh, radiographically. About uh, 19 or 20 are recommended to have an image-guided needle biopsy under local anesthesia. Uh, about as safe a procedure as possible, and we find five to eight breast cancers, which is a very high yield. These are the harms of screening that are getting some of these, getting the panels to say either wait until 50 or 45 or whatever because we wouldn't want you to have to worry about doing this. I think women should be allowed to make that decision, not panels. This was, it came out after the uh, 2009 uh, task force guidelines uh, where this I think this cartoonist was right on. He said, yes, regular mammograms and early detection would have saved your life. But aren't you glad we spared you all that anxiety? And there, there is anxiety associated with being recalled from screening. It's scary, you think you may have breast cancer. Fortunately, the vast majority are, are reassured. It's interesting, the American Cancer Society guidelines didn't count anxiety as a major issue. Uh, so they weren't, it seems to me, when they were saying, well, you can wait, it had to do with inconvenience rather than anything else, which is a little strange to me. We do have a problem in this country. And um, I don't have time, I'm happy again to go over all the data on this. Uh, New England Journal of Medicine, that's my, you know, Harvard's journal, theoretically. The Annals of Internal Medicine, Journal the AMA, and the Journal of the National Cancer Institute. By the way, how many of you assume the Journal of the National Cancer Institute is the National Cancer Institute's journal? It's the Journal of the National Cancer Institute. Yeah, everyone's going. Yes. It was sold to Oxford University Press in 1998 and has uh, not been the... <sighs> National Cancer Institute's journals since then. And if you go on their website in tiny little words, it says, we have no relationship to the National Inst- uh, Cancer Institute. Yet the media pick up their papers, they're published as if they have the imprimatur of the NCI. I mean, it's a huge, I think, publishing scandal that no one seems to care about. And the JNCI has refused to publish supporting articles, until recently, they have a new editor, uh, supporting articles uh, with breast cancer screening, particularly for women in their 40s, as have these other journals. Um, The New England Journal continues to publish misleading and scientifically unsupportable material about screening. Uh, This was a paper published in 2010 by Callagher et al. uh, from Norway, where they claimed that screening women in Norway had little effect on mortality. Uh, They looked at the national screening program in uh, Norway uh, and looked at what happened to the death rate after the screening program started, assuming that no one had been screened before, and they were going to see a a decline in deaths. Now, you have to read it very carefully. There are only 2.2 years of follow-up in this study. Has anyone seen an article in the New England Journal of Medicine of any sort that had only 2.2 years of follow-up? I mean, screening doesn't kick in probably for about five years. You you don't, unfortunately, pick up the fast-growing cancers. That's been known forever. It's called length-bias sampling. Periodic screens don't get the fastest-growing cancers, but they save lives on the moderate and slower-growing cancers that you still have to find earlier to save a life further down the line. 2.2 years of follow-up. Just to show you, these are data from the Swedish two-county trial. And you can see that the curves for this this is the unscreened women and the screened women in the two-county trial didn't start to go apart for about four or five years, which is what you expect. And yet the New England Journal published a paper with 2.2 years of follow-up. In addition, the authors claimed there was very little screening going on before the screening program started. So they were arguing that you should see a decline in deaths because no one was being screened if screening was making a difference. Well, it turns out that about 40 percent of women in Norway were being screened before the national program started, and uh, this was grossly misleading. And in subsequent uh, work from Norway, there's been a 20 to 30 percent decline in uh, breast cancer deaths related uh, to screening. This is another paper in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, by Blyer and Welch. Some of you, I think, know Dr. Welch, um, where they claimed that in 2008 alone, breast cancer was overdiagnosed, overdiagnosed, in more than 70,000 women, 30% of all breast cancers diagnosed. And it, just as a coincidence, Dr. Welch had an op-ed piece in the um, uh, New York Times uh, at the right after his paper was published. very hard to get op-ed pieces in the New York Times. I've tried multiple times. There's not a single credible report of an invasive breast cancer melting away. Now, we've got some cancer specialists here. Anyone seen a breast cancer disappear on its own? Let the record show no hands are raised. (laughs) Uh, It happens in every room that I've uh, been in. No one's ever seen one disappear, and yet 70,000 in one year, somebody should have seen one. I mean, I've been up at Dartmouth, you know, I was up at Dartmouth, as I said, years ago, and there are people who don't really, you know, come in for treatment, uh, even though they're supposed to, and you would have expected to see one of those melt away, but they never have. <clears throat> if there's any overdiagnosis, uh, it can only be measured, really, in randomized controlled trials. I, again, I'll have to talk to you afterward, but uh, that's the only way to tell. And in looking at the randomized controlled trials... This at most 10% and it's more likely less than 1% uh, overdiagnosis. The paper in the New England Journal really had no scientific merit. They didn't have direct patient data, they just looked at numbers in the SEER registry. Mammography was faulted for all this overdiagnosis, yet they had not a single piece of information on who had mammograms and which cancers were picked up by mammography. Uh, it's pretty hard to fault a technology when you have no data on the technology. And they inappropriately combine ductal carcinoma in situ, and there are legitimate questions about DCIS that I won't have time to go into today. Um, but they combined DCIS with small invasive cancers and caused them, them early breast cancer. They based their analysis on assumptions and estimates and extrapolations, which were incorrect. So here's, here's basically what was done in the paper. These are the red dots are the SEER data. <clears throat> These are national data. And you can see that what's going on here. Anyone want to hazard a guess? Suddenly going up. Screening began. So this is how we know screening began in the United States because you get a start of prevalent cancers uh, coming in. What? But there was a little bump back here. Anyone know what that was? It's 1974 was when SEER began. Anyone remember? Anyone around in 1974? Few people. Dr. Israel, I think you were probably around. Do you, do you remember what happened? Do you remember what happened? Uh, Happy Rockefeller and Betty Ford, the Vice President's wife and the President of the United States' wife, were diagnosed with breast cancer. And I believe it was found by mammography because there was a sudden surge, we weren't screening any major numbers of women, sudden surge in cancer detection because women went out and got mammograms and then they stopped getting mammograms. Now when you get mammograms and then you stop getting mammograms, uh, there's a drop in cancer incidence because you've already found cancers from next year and the year after. So if you look at the few years after people come in and then they stop, there will be a decrease in incidence because you've already found a lot of those cancers. Well, uh, the New England Journal paper, Blair and Welch's paper, picked 1976 to 78 as their baseline because they wanted to estimate how many cancers would there have been in 2008 out here had there not been any screening. So they used this as the baseline, and they came up with 0.25% increase uh, annually. And this is the line that they came up with. So this is an increase of 0.25%. This is what they guessed, and Dr. Blyer has said it was our best guess, what cancer incidents would have been had there not been screening. And you can see, that there are more cancers. These are the real numbers up here. This is what they guesstimated would have been the cancer incidence. I see a lot of wrinkled brows. Does anyone understand this? No one? Oh, we got one. In other words, they wanted to say, if we hadn't started screening in the mid-1980s, causing this bump in cancer detection, this is what we would have expected. No screening. This is where we would have expected the annual detection of cancers to be without screening. That's the best I can do. We can talk afterward if anyone doesn't get it. So they're saying all of these, because these are the real numbers, all of these between this red line and up here are cancers that never would have happened over diagnosis. This is what the paper says. I mean, I I apologize if I'm not making it clear. I'll try and clarify it afterward if you want. What they failed to recognize is that the incidence of breast cancer was going up steadily before any screening by 1% per year. Some people have said even more. This is from the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, when it was still the National Cancer Institute's Journal. And this, uh, these are Kinetic Tumor Registry data showing a steady increase for invasive cancers. I'm not talking about DCIS now. Invasive cancers going up, and here's the SEER data coming in so they overlap. And you can see that without any screening, Cancer incidence was increasing in the United States by one percent per year. And other authors, the only ones I can find who have looked at the incidence before SEER began in '74, use the Connecticut Tumor Registry. Uh, Walt Willett, some of you know from Harvard um, School of Public Health, famous um, uh, epidemiologist, used that. Uh, everybody has used the Connecticut Tumor Registry data. So I did a plot of the Connecticut Tumor Registry data superimposed on SEER, and not only do you not have more cancers than you would have expected, because the green line is the expected cancers had it continued to go up at 1% per year, but you have fewer cancers. And uh, I'll come back to that in a second. So if the correct extrapolation had been used, and there's a lot, you know, we can argue about whether this is even the right way to look at these data, but this is what Blyer and Welch did. They extrapolated... Uh, saying that there was massive overdiagnosis, if you used one percent per year, which I would argue, forty years of data are better than three. Um, there's not only no excess cancers, no overdiagnosis, uh, but there's um, there were fewer cancers. And if you're taking ductal carcinoma in situ out of the population, you would hope there would be fewer invasive cancers, which may be the reason. Again, I wouldn't argue from a science point of view, but it's certainly uh, uh, likely. Healthcare advice shouldn't be based on guesses. And there was an effort to actually get this paper withdrawn. There was a letter to the editor of the New England Journal, signed by more than 40 experts in breast care, surgeons, uh, oncologists, uh, radiation oncologists, and a few um, uh, organizations, uh, saying the paper was not scientifically supportable, and it, the New England Journal of Medicine wouldn't even publish the letter. Um, Byron Welch claimed that there was no, a very little decline in advanced cancers so supporting their position that screening wasn't having much effect. In fact, if you use the annual percentage change of 1.3 percent, which is what Helvey and Hendrick did based on a lot of other data, there's been a decline of 37 percent in advanced cancers, so Blyer and Welch were incorrect about that. And actually, Blyer shows this when he shows the various different um, uh, guesses, if you will, that could have been done. There's been a major decline in late-stage cancers. And then finally, uh, a third paper, uh, looking at what Brian Welch did, um, showed that if, if they were correct, then American radiologists were finding cancers nine years before you could feel them in order to support those, the data that they were claiming. No one's ever claimed nine years, and most, maybe four, most of us think lead time is about two years. So they, American radiologists would have had astonishing cancer detection rates, again, for um, this to uh, be true. So, again, see uh, three separate analyses that show that the paper did not have uh, scientific support. Now, the next thing that came up was the Canadian National Breast Screening Study. Uh, i forgot forgotten now, about two years ago, I think it was a 25-year follow-up. And the media picked this up, landmarks, 25-year follow-up, landmark study, huge study. And um, these are the, this was the paper in the British Medical Journal, uh, I guess it was just last year. Um, the CNBSS was discredited back in the, the 90s when the data first came out and we found out how they had conducted the trial. They may had major violations in how they ran this trial. Um, when you do a randomized control trial, you have to have a blinded allocation. You can't know anything about the patients ahead of time. So. Here's a group of women, and we need to divide them randomly so that we end up with two groups that are identical, basically. That's the principle of a randomized control trial. So everyone in red is going to develop a breast cancer, and if you have a successful allocation, you should have the same number of women developing breast cancer year after year in both arms. And, as gruesome as it sounds, if you did nothing to either population, you'd have the same number of women dying of breast cancer. That's the basis of a randomized control trial. And if fewer women die in your screened group, then you can say that screening made the difference, because that's the only difference between the two groups. And that's what's been shown in most of the randomized controlled trials. Now, if you somehow imbalance your allocation of women to one group or the other, you can end up with more women with breast cancer in one group than the other, and you can have more women die of breast cancer in one group than the other. And this is actually what happened in the Canadian National Breast Screening Study. In 1992, they claimed in the Canadian Medical Association Journal that mammography was killing women. It's important for you to remember this because I'm going to give you some quotes in a minute. The the claim was that, uh, not claim, the data showed there were more cancer deaths in the mammography screening arm in the 40 to 49 year old age group than in the controlled women who got usual care, and there was a big (laughs) kerfuffle that we were killing women uh, with mammography and then finally the um, principal investigator, uh, Professor Miller, uh, admitted that it wasn't because we were screening canth- uh, squeezing cancer cells uh, into the blood, although he had said that and was quoted on the front page of the uh, Times of London back in the 90s. Um, and then they came up with, well, it wasn't squeezing cancer cells, it had to do with the ataxia, thalangia, tasia genome, it got very convoluted. They never explained, really, why they had more cancer deaths in their screening arm. I'm going to show you why they did right now. This is all documented, you know, it's all been published. Uh, Their own reviewers who were brought in to review their allocation process pointed out that all the women had a clinical breast examination before they were allocated to the screening arm or the control arm. Um, I think Dr. Israel would admit that's a no no. You can't know anything about the women ahead of time that could compromise the allocation, particularly when you're not flipping a coin or picking a random number, particularly when you have open lists. Screen control, screen control, screen control. And a naive coordinator could skip a line and say, i got someone with a lump, I want to make sure she gets a mammogram, not realizing that she was corrupting the trial. Now the fact that this happened uh, was when we discovered that there were 19 women allocated to the screening arm with four more positive lymph nodes. These are incurable advanced uh, cancers, only five in the control group. Now, the Canadian, uh, Canadians argued, oh, well, mammography finds more of everything. Well, except that 17 of the 19 were found by clinical exam. They weren't found by mammography. So if you want to drop out the two mammographically detected ones, that's 17 versus 5. Statistically significant excess of women who were destined to die of breast cancer got put into the screening arm. Now, again, I've never claimed that this was done intentionally. I think it was done naively. But the data clearly show that it happened. First of all, it also explains why there were more deaths in the screening group than in the control group. There's no other reason to explain that. And of even greater amazement to me, which people have ignored, the control women who are getting the usual care in Canada. And in Canada, the five-year survival rate was 75%. The control women in the Canadian National Breast Screening Study had better than 90% five-year survival. I don't think we're at that level in the United States in 2015. So here in the 1980s, the control women in this supposedly well-done trial were living incredible. congratulations. But I think the explanation is that's because the women who were going to die who should have been in that control arm ended up getting uh, put in the screening arm. Uh, Regardless whether this happened or not, there were major violations of randomized controlled trials. The mammography was terrible mammography. You'd think in a trial of mammography, you'd try and do really good mammography. Well, they didn't. They used a lot of old devices. The one in Vancouver, this is the 1980s now, so the mammography systems were not that great to begin with. If you had a 10-year-old machine, it was really not great. (laughs) Uh, they didn't use grids. I'll show you that effect in a second. There was no training for the techs, no training for the radiologists. I was at a meeting, and a radiologist stood up and said, "I was the head of the NBSS um, uh, screening center in—I uh, forgot where he was—and he said I had never read a mammogram. I took a four-day course, and I was the head of the. You know, I mean, it, again, this is all documented. It's—it's it's not me making this up." of interest is that the cancers detected in the mammography arm were the same size as the cancers in the control arm. Now, we all know that mammography finds cancers at a smaller size. Um, Clearly, there was something wrong with their mammography. And in fact, their own physicist to this day repeats this, that the mammography was, the quality of the mammography was, quote, far below state-of-the-art even for that time, the early 1980s. This is uh, how positioning any X-ray. Text in the audience. Yeah, you know this is a terribly positioned mammogram. We have no pectoralis muscle. It was read as negative. Here, you know, a year later, a big cancer. Well, it was smaller back here, but it was missed because it wasn't. The, the radiologist thought it was a blood vessel, and had they pulled her further in the machine, they might have seen this cancer a year earlier. Who knows if it would have saved her life? But it might have saved her life. Whereas if you have poor positioning, your cancers are bigger than if you have good positioning. This is without a grid, grid cleans up scatter radiation. Same patient, same day, with a grid, this is a big cancer, and put them side by side, no grid with a grid. I think everyone can see the cancer here, you might go, I don't know, is that, I don't know what that is. So the point is, if you do bad, this is from their physicist who, this is the mammography from the 1980s in the Canadian study, this is a 2004 digital mammogram, much greater detail. The point is that the quality of the mammography was terrible. Now, the other problem is that when papers get published that shouldn't be published, and then people go to the public and say things that are misleading is a big problem because it sets the whole tone. Because most of us don't read papers in detail. We get our, even physicians, I won't ask how many, get their you know news from the New York Times or Time Magazine or, you know, one of the major... Uh, publications, they may read the abstract of the paper or something. So this is a quote uh, from Dr. Welch. The Canadian National Breast Screening Study randomized 89,000 women to annual screening. The study was initiated in 1980, intervention period was five years. Actually, there were two separate studies. One was looking at women 40 to 49, and the other was looking at women 50 to 59, they had different protocols. So they shouldn't have been put together. Dr. Welch um, made it sound as if there was one study. Then this is in his um, Huffington Post. This is all, you know, public material. Since the initial publication of its findings, it's been the subject, this is the Canadian study, of intense criticism by a small group of physicians who appear to subscribe to the adage that if you repeat something often enough, it eventually becomes true. And I would respond to that as being one of the small group of physicians. If you're citing facts, then the only thing you can do is repeat them. It's the repetition of misinformation that's of concern, and we've done nothing but citing facts. In a commentary on CNN, and I think it's probably still on there, Don't Slam Canada for Mammogram Study, quote, study participants are placed at random in either one group, in this case those who get mammograms, or the other, those who do not. Who is in which group is solely based on the play of chance, a flip of a coin. Now, I just went through all the documentation that there was no coin flip women were examined first and then assigned on open lists. But that didn't stop the allegation from being trotted out last week. The new study provides evidence that randomization did exactly what it was supposed to do – created two identical groups of women. The rate of death in the two groups was exactly the same every year for 25 years. That can't happen by cheating. That can only happen when the groups are formed solely by chance. Well, I just showed you that In the 1990s, there was a big kerfuffle because there were more deaths in the screening arm than in the control arm. So to, uh, you know, a little revisionism to say there were the same number of deaths year after year, that's not true if you looked at the studies 40 to 49 and 50 to 59 the way they were supposed to be looked at. So that's false. One criticism was the use of outdated mammographic technology a concern that could be leveled at all the trials of screening mammography since they were initiated decades ago. Well, this again is not understanding the facts. He's suggesting that the CNBSS is being judged on the quality of today's mammograms. It was being judged on the quality of mammograms back in the 1980s, and they failed based on – I was one of the reviewers that they brought up to review the quality of their mammograms. We, were, we didn't have digital. You know, We were basing them on the mammograms that we knew how mammograms could be done at that time. And uh, Myron Moskowitz and a radiologist from Canada and I graded them as poor to unacceptable for most of their trial. They actually published those data. So we weren't grading them on modern mammography, they were poor compared to the mammography of the time. And then the more serious criticism, however, was that the investigators had cheated. The randomization had been subverted and sicker women directed to the screening group. Well, it's pretty outrageous because no one has ever said they cheated. Their own descriptions and the published facts show that the allocation of women was unblinded and compromised. Those are the facts. I don't think, it was, I hope it wasn't done intentionally, but it certainly happened based on the, the data. Now, for the oncologists in the audience, if I uh, reported on a trial of chemotherapy and I used Alcoran, which is an outdated agent, and I first performed a clinical breast exam on all the women before assigning them to the drug arm or the control arm, And I identified the women with the larger, more advanced cancers before allocation, and those who allocated the women knew the results of the clinical exam. An assignment to the treatment group or the control group was on open lists. Are you getting ill here listening to this? This is how not to do a trial. That a line could be skipped placing the larger cancers in the drug arm, and a statistically significant greater number of women with large advanced cancers were allocated to the drug arm. And I showed that not only were there no fewer deaths among the treated women, but there were more deaths. And I concluded, therefore, that no form of chemotherapy had any value in treating breast cancer, my trial would never make it in a paper, it would have been thrown as compromised. I don't understand why that's, and that's the correct thing to do for a treatment trial, why is it not the correct thing for a screening trial? In addition, the CNBSS, the Canadian study, claimed that there were more than 22 percent more cancers detected in their screening arm which they claimed were overdiagnosis, except if you look at their paper. This is uh, Figure One, I think it is. Yeah, Table One. Sorry, Table One. They had in the screening arm three three thousand two hundred and fifty cancers and three thousand one hundred thirty three in the control arm. Which, if you do the math, and I can do the higher mathematics here, it's a difference of one hundred and seventeen. Which, overall, those women is less than four percent overdiagnosis. They claimed a twenty two percent over. Their paper has, has the data in there. So the CNBSS has been ignored in Canada, which is ironic. And they published an article uh, in 2014, the Canadians, showing uh, in an observational analysis of the various provinces a marked decline in deaths for women who participate in screening uh, and including women uh, in their 40s. So I would finish, and I want to finish with some time for questions. The debate has not been about the facts, but it's been, unfortunately, the result of data manipulation I would say pseudoscience that's permitted and uh, perpetuated by bias and failed peer review at the medical journals and disseminated by an uncritical media. Now, the last thing is, well, I love this. Why are we screening all these women who aren't going to get breast cancer? Why don't we just screen the women who are going to get breast cancer? And it's like, I never thought of that. What a brilliant idea. And really, that's the way it's being proposed. Let's just screen high-risk women. Well, first of all, the randomized control trials weren't stratified by risk, so we don't know whether screening high-risk women saves lives. We think it will. But the more important point is women with a genetically inherited um, mutation of the BRCA1, BRCA2, so-called BRCA1, BRCA2 genes, account for about 10% of all breast cancers each year in the United States. If we put in family history and some of the other risk factors, another 15%. If you do the math, that's 25% meaning that 75% of women diagnosed with breast cancer each year in the United States have no known extra risk. So if we do what uh, the brilliant people are saying, let's just screen based on risk, we'll miss the women who develop most of the cancers will not have the advantage of screening. So radiologists are suggesting we should screen everyone with mammography, and then high-risk women add magnetic resonance imaging uh, to the mix because of their higher risk. People who want to screen based on risk don't want to screen anyone unless they're at high risk. So I think uh, that's a problem. Screening has consistently shown a decrease in breast cancer deaths. And again, even the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and uh, the American Cancer Society all agree that most lives are saved by annual screening beginning at the age of 40. So I would just finish by saying most women who develop breast cancer are not at increased risk. All women are at risk and annual screening at the age of 40. should be encouraged for all women. Even if it's not encouraged, it should be available. And the concern is that these guidelines get misinterpreted uh, and the insurance companies say, well, we're only going to pay for every two years starting at 50. That means that only wealthy women can participate in annual screening. Well, I appreciate uh, the invitation. I appreciate you sitting through all this, and I'm happy to take uh, any questions.
1: Thank you very much. Dr. Copans. Um, I'd like to uh, open up the floor to questions. Oh, come on. I'll give a talk. There you go. So uh, did you say that no study has looked at the uh, screening uh, benefit for women who are at risk, like BRCA, BRCA1 and BRCA2, should they be getting, like, started screening at 30 or so? Or
0: on? Yeah, I mean, the answer is there's no randomized controlled trial that anyone has done screening High, these high risk women, uh, we think that, I mean, screening, the, the randomized control trials, I would argue, have shown that finding cancer earlier saves lives. Uh, and theoretically, if you screen high risk women and find their cancers earlier, you'll save lives, but we don't actually have proof of that. Yeah. Yes, sir? That is another benefit from
1: screens. So you touch, I'm mainly focus on saving lives, but if you detect, mammography is going to detect cancers when they're smaller and when they're less likely to have nodal metastases, And so, as by, by much as one of those sort of oncologists I'd much rather treat patients when they have smaller tumors that are less likely to be known positive because the toxicity of therapy is going to be a lot less for those patients, too. So, most, many more of them can have lumpectomies rather than mastectomies and a lot can go chemotherapy that would otherwise be recommended to get chemotherapy. That's another, that's
0: so, did, did anyone not hear that? I mean, I think that, you know, that's a point I stay away from that because it's a little bit too. I mean, there have been some studies that show that you do uh, have uh, less aggressive uh, treatment if you treat smaller cancers. Um, and, uh, but, yeah. yeah but, but saving lives is sort of what everybody kind of relates to. But no, you're absolutely right. If you find cancer at a smaller size and earlier stage, the treatment can be less uh, aggressive. Yeah. Yes?
1: Uh, have you read the article on Time Magazine recently about different state of breast cancer has different recommendations for treatment? I'm
0: sorry, what was...
1: the they to watch I don't do any operation or chemotherapy?
0: Well, if I understand your question, it's... DCIS, yeah. So, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, breast cancer almost certainly starts uh, in the uh, in, uh, lining cells of the, of the ducts and uh, grows as intraductal ductal carcinoma in situ for nobody knows how long, some very short, some very long. And eventually, many of these will invade and become invasive cancers. Cancer that's in the ducts can't kill anyone. Uh, Invasive cancer gets access to the lymphatics and the uh, blood supply and can spread to other parts of the body, and it's metastatic spread, uh, destroying other organs that, that kills people. So the big controversy, because mammography... Finds a lot of ductal carcinoma in situ. Before uh, mammography, the percent of women diagnosed with breast cancer with DCIS, it was about 3 to 5 percent of all cancers. It's now 20 to 25 percent of all cancers. So there's no question screening finds uh, DCIS. And the big question is how to treat that. And there was a paper that came out (coughs) recently, um, Dr. Nayrod, who actually wrote the 25-year follow-up of the Canadian study, where they looked at SEER data and showed, I would say not surprising, that it didn't matter how you treated the breast. Uh, Survivals were, A, very good, but uh, you didn't affect ultimate survival by whether you did a lumpectomy, lumpectomy plus radiation, or mastectomies. Um, The problem is that this was not a randomized trial, so the women who had low-grade, probably small DCIS were the ones who probably had lumpectomy, and then so on up to Larger DCIS, We don't know that. The data weren't in the study. <clears throat> the paper got misinterpreted as saying you don't have to treat anyone for DCIS. Everyone in that paper, as far as we know, got treated. Uh, and there are legitimate questions. We don't know. Uh, pathologists don't know how to tell which DCIS lesion is going to go on and invade. We've got some idea. Go on and invade and become potentially uh, lethal. So that's where all the most of breast cancer treatment, even for invasive cancers, is for local control. It's the systemic treatment that you use to try and clean up any potential metastatic spread. So even with invasive cancers, you know what you do to the breast doesn't make that much difference in survival. It makes a little difference, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't make that much difference in survival. So it's not surprising that for DCIS it didn't make a difference. But the problem was that it got totally misreported in the media, saying the deaths were the, so there were actually twice as many deaths, uh, or the, the risk of death was twice, almost twice what the normal population would be with, who didn't have uh, breast cancer. So there, you know, again, a lot of misinformation. But this is nothing new. I, again, I've been in this for 40 years, and my surgical and uh, oncologic colleagues have been wrestling with DCIS for that long. We did a study at Mass General, uh, I'm sorry, at the Harvard hospitals again where uh, we uh, took low grade DCIS, low and intermediate grade, uh, no more than two and a half centimeters in diameter, wide excision with a one centimeter margin, no no further treatment. And the study was stopped because the recurrence rates were too high uh, by five years. And there was just a study, a multi-institutional study of DCIS treated the same way. Solon reported it, I haven't read the whole paper, but uh, I think their recurrence rates were 12% at 10 years, something like that, and half of them were as invasive cancers. So there's no question, we need to get better at tailoring treatment. But it's fine to say that. It's another thing to do it safely. And I you know, completely support all the efforts to get better at what we do. I mean, we developed tomosynthesis to find more cancers and reduce the recall rate. Uh, we're all for improving things, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just one other quick point. People say, well, stop screening, then you won't over-treat DCIS. And I would say, well, that's a good idea. We can end all automobile accidents. Let's just take the engines out of our cars. Did Do you, you have
1: for one
0: last quick question? Oh, well, we... Yeah. I just have a question about the, the,
1: sort of the starting point where it seems like you've had a lot of of interactions with the
0: editors and the New England Journal and general and others won't publish this compelling evidence that you have, these sort of compelling reanalyses that show misinterpretation
1: yep. and misconstruing of the data and erroneous analyses. And I just wonder what you make of that.
0: Can we talk afterward? No. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a naively... Op- I'm a naively optimistic and trusting person. And it's very worrisome. Um, I I didn't have time to show these slides, but in 2009, when the US Preventive Services Task Force came out with their guidelines, I wrote a critique. And I had nine scientific issues that I took with the task force. And I sent it to the New England Journal of Medicine. They turned it down without any scientific comment and published a sounding board article that said that the criticisms from radiologists were due to our greed. We just wanted to make money. That was, that was their response. Do you know the, the editor? are at Harvard? Do you know these editors? I, I know one of the, Well, when the and Welch uh, paper came out, I got it ahead of time. Because, you know, the media get these. The media have had the ACS guidelines since last week. You didn't know that. The media get it so their stories can come out when the, when the uh, article breaks and the experts, only by happenstance, uh, may get to see it. I saw that paper and I emailed uh, one of, uh, a guy who was ahead of me in medical school. Who's an editor, and I said you can't publish this; it's scientifically not supportable. He never, never responded to me. Just another point: the Annals of Internal Medicine. I sent the same paper, and I can give you the. It got published in a radiology journal, which everybody reads, right? No, <laughs> uh, so you can read it and see if it, maybe it wasn't worthy of publication. But I sent it into the Annals of Internal Medicine. They turned it down without scientific criticism, and then wrote an editorial saying the only criticism of the task force was based on. Anecdote, uh, Politics, and Emotion. I just sent them nine scientific reasons, and they published So I'm very worried about the ethics of what's going on. Um, Most people don't realize that journal, I mean, a radiology journal, you know we generally write good things about radiology, but sometimes there are criticisms of radiology. You expect a radiology journal to be biased toward radiology. You don't expect the New England Journal of Medicine to be biased. Now this goes back for a very long time. Marcia Angel, who was one of the, uh, she was assistant editor back in the 90s and I think early part of the century, when they were again publishing one side of the story, I wrote to her, and I said, you realize that you know everyone thinks that you're unbiased, but you're publishing one side of this issue, and she wrote an editorial saying the New England Journal of Medicine, quote, didn't feel compelled to provide both sides of controversial topics. So they've rationalized it. Um, uh, You know, it's very concerning. I guess there are two closer related questions. One is, are there real harms of screening, and if so, is there some bottom incidence some early enough age where harms would outweigh the benefits, and um, is it appropriate to consider cost in that analysis? Ah, there's the answer. If you want to bring cost into it, say it. I mean, I think cost is probably behind most. I don't think there. Women should be able to decide for themselves whether they want to risk being recalled and the anxiety and the inconvenience, um, not some panel. Deciding for them. I mean that to me is the most and there were women on the panel, so pater- maternalistic and paternalistic Situation I can I can think of If you want to say it's too expensive Then we can have a discussion I have no problem if someone wants to say we, we, we don't think it's worth paying the money to save women's lives Would anyone disagree with that in the audience? Yeah. The problem is people don't want to say that. There was one article, I, it was in JAMA or Annals, I can't remember now, where they said, well, it costs $10 billion to screen all the women in the United States every year, 40, 40 on up. If we went with the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines and screened only starting at 50, and every two years we'd save $7 billion. And you go, wow, that's a lot of money. What's the health care budget in the United States? We have a laugh in the front. $3 trillion. So I would argue that saving and seven billion, seven billion. I mean, if but saving seven billion is not going to be a huge dent in the healthcare budget. And it turned out they, they were supposed to talk about the cost and then you know the the cost benefit analysis. There was no benefit issue in there. It turns out that it costs about two hundred fifty thousand dollars for your last year of life for treatment from breast cancer, and for women in their forties. The loss to economic loss to society is about 1.4 million. So it's uh, one and three quarters million for women in their 40s. Women, older women, sorry, you're only worth about 250,000 in in loss of economic uh, benefit. But if we cut back on screening and let women die, it's not a complete. we, We wouldn't save all that much money. We'd still lose some money. I have no problem if people want to have that discussion. Uh, but they don't they're saying it doesn't work the, you know we, we did all, the anxiety of being called back which is real and i don't mean to downplay it but that should be decided by the individual woman whether she wants to uh, subject herself to that possibility i just think we're not being honest uh, with no, women are i
1: correct in thinking that the u.s um, task force did not have a single expert in breast
0: cancer well actually none of the, the task forces did none, none of the what happens is, what's happened in this country is that we're so afraid of conflicts of interest. That's why all the disclosures and we have, where is she? The the conference policewoman was here. Um, <laughs> if if you have a conflict of interest, you can't be on any of these panels. Now, I would argue that if you don't have a conflict of interest, you probably don't have much expertise in the field. I could be wrong about that, but I don't think so. So what's happened is that we've got panels. I mean, the ACS panel is going to be touted as gold uh, ribbon, uh, blue ribbon, gold standard panel. Um, There are. They don't take care of women with breast cancer. One of my colleagues was on it, uh, who's a PhD um, and has done a lot of uh, uh, modeling of breast cancer. So he was the closest. uh, I think there's one other epidemiologist on the panel, but there's nobody taking care of women with breast cancer. They're deciding screening guidelines. And I would argue that It would be quite arrogant on my part if someone said to me we want you to determine neurosurgical guidelines. (laughs) I'm a reasonably intelligent guy, I could probably look at the literature and read it, but why would I have the nerve to to come up and say I can develop uh, develop neurosurgical guidelines? They're not experts, it's a long-winded answer to your question. I just
1: want to point out that not only were they not experts in any aspect of breast cancer, but four of the 16 had ties to the insurance companies. And that's not what they, uh, that was only exposed after I did a close search on all of the panel members. Before,
0: right? yeah, there, are, there are issues. Does anyone know who supports the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Care, where their money comes from? I, I, I can't find out. Uh, so we
1: have a series of grants, mostly NIH. We had some past funding from the uh, Johnson Clinical Foundation, we get a lot from the Commonwealth Fund, a little bit from Synergy, CTSA, NIH, and a Big NIA grant.
0: That's all of it? Okay. Hmm? I think on that
1: note, we'll stop there. Thank you very much. You. Great.